Welcome to Sound Business, the podcast that reveals how sound affects your business outcomes, from the productivity and well-being of your staff, to your sales and profit, your brand value, your marketing effectiveness, your customer experience, and all your key relationships. I'm Julian Treasure, Chairman of the Sound Agency and five-time TED speaker, with over 100 million views for my TED Talks about sound, and I'll be your guide as we discover the power of sound to boost your business's success, as well as your own happiness, effectiveness, and well-being. In an episode of this podcast called The Sound Revolution, I described the coming sea change in our communication with technology as we move from visual to auditory user interfaces, from typing and peering at screens to speaking and listening. Smart speakers, Siri and Alexa, are just the first raindrops of a storm that I believe will sweep away many of the things we've become accustomed to at the interface between human and machine. E-commerce forms, PIN numbers, usernames, passwords, apps, leaving us in natural spoken conversation with entities that are artificially intelligent and that handle most of our search, commerce, and communication for us. This is not science fiction. I believe it'll be with us in just a few years. And if we will soon have personal gatekeepers that exist only in sound and that come between us and the internet, brands will need to make profound changes in the way they approach us. Well, if you want to check out the future, there are people you can ask. People who earn a living by thinking deeply about how things will be. They're called futurists, and I happen to know a couple of rather good ones, so I thought it would be interesting to explore their perspectives on the technology of the sound revolution and on its implications for brands. First, the tech. Listed as one of the 100 most influential people in Europe, Gerd Leonard has made his career focusing on the impact of technology on our humanity and very much championing the latter. He's spoken on hundreds of stages all over the world to more than two million people. He's written five books and the latest was called Technology versus Humanity. So who better to ask about the opportunities and the threats of this new voice-based tech? I caught up with Gerd as he was filming in Lanzarote and started by asking if he agrees that we are indeed heading to a world where we speak and listen rather than typing and looking at screens. Yes, I would say we're definitely moving into the future of natural language processing and voice command being the new normal. So I agree with you, we're not going to sit at the computer and type any of best sushi in London. We can just issue a voice command for that. And it could be, you know, to to the wallpaper, right, <laughs> or the wristwatch. And that's already happening. I think we're definitely moving in that direction with what's called NUIs, natural user interfaces. The big difference between those two will be that doing explicit searches like you do on Google right now or wherever and you're putting in best sushi in London is very explicit, while speaking is kind of implicit because you can also deduct my current state of mind, my feelings from what I say. So I think it has been said that one sentence that you speak can purvey a million times as many data points as one sentence that you type. 
and not because of the content, because of everything else that is conveyed. For example, a bunch of sentences would be enough to determine what kind of current mood I am and things like that. So I believe this is definitely happening. The idea of artificial intelligence being as good as human understanding, I think that's still quite a way off. There has been great progress on image and recognition and, of course, on translation and things. But we're not at that point where you can say that a machine can easily know the difference between four, F-O-R, and four, F-O-U-R, and four, F-O-R-E. Right? <laughs> that, that, that is still quite a bit of time away. I would say probably in the neighborhood of three, four, five years. That's not so far. And you're talking about context and connotation and semantics here, which clearly are very important, as well, of course, as what I call the vocal toolbox, Mm -hmm. which is things like intonation, prosody, pace, tone of voice, all those kinds of things, stress in the voice. There's a lot for an artificial intelligence to decode, but five years is not so far, is it? It's not far. I think there are several key issues about this technology. One is that I would have to allow the use in the cloud so you can compare with other fragments and basically use deep learning, machine learning approaches on personal voice samples. That is a considerable hurdle in terms of opting in for this. Right? And then there's a question of safety and security of fake audio calls that we already have today and all of those things. So that's going to hold back, I think, a little bit of it. And I think the overall time frame is to be able to communicate with the machine as if it was a human brings up many other issues, including confusion. If you use right now GPT-3, the open AI, if you use that to type in a voice command and say, what would Elon Musk say about going to Mars, then GPT-3 can give you an answer. That's really quite different than talking to Elon Musk inside of GPT-3. So there's going to be a lot of social, cultural changes that go with this kind of voice interface, which may keep it back from going as quickly as it could in terms of technology. But I agree with you. I think the interfaces that we had with computing, they were fairly old-fashioned, you know, search and type and bring up an app and probably 10-year time frame that most of that will be replaced. Now, if it is replaced in that time frame, the big question is who are going to be the key players in this technology? And ultimately, I think the most interesting question Who will own the intelligent agent? Will it be Apple, Google, Amazon? Will it be us? Will it be some new player? That's a very good question. I think you're talking about a pretty high exposure application here that can read a lot about who you are much quicker than text could. I mean, it's already quite clear that if you just filter all your WhatsApp messages, you get a pretty clear profile on information that even people themselves would not know about themselves, right? By having voice analytics and so on. And I think one of the key challenges here is who would you trust with this? And just like right now, we're having many issues with trust and abuse of data in social media. Imagine that that would be magnified by 1000X if it was about actual audio and voices and human-like conversations. So that could be a substantial hurdle. And I, I think we already see how that works with regular information, you know, typed information and how much it holds back people from engaging. So that would be something that would need to be solved in terms of a digital identity guarantee, probably a global privacy regulation of a sort. And we've had none of that with everything else, like we had with advertising and cookies and all that stuff that people are currently uh, 
trying to change, to amend into a future. So in the past, you know, it has been that we get amazing tools like Facebook and Google search and Gmail and so on. In return, we're being subject to surveillance. That has been the deal. And that deal is not sustainable. Because right? clearly it's like we're completely uh, in a one-sided relationship here. <laughs> and that is just not going to... And, and I mean, imagine that would work with your voice and, and voice is very close to think, right? You could say, mm. you could argue, you're on the way towards analyzing thinking. You know, so yeah, that, that deal will not stand. If I'm going to get Google to do that for me, and we would do it under the current provisions, which means data mining. Right? No, I don't think that would work. <laughs> so it has to be somebody that we would trust implicitly. And uh, that's a big question because there isn't a lot of that going on out there, particularly, of course, with the way that deep fakes are going, even in video, but in audio, they're pretty advanced now. And there's a lot more resources going into the faking uh, than there is going into the anti-faking, security, watermarking, whatever it is, how are we going to deal with that? Because if, as you say, there's an entity in the cloud that owns effectively our voice, well, hacking becomes terrifying, doesn't it? Well, if you're looking at the magnitude of interference, possible interference, you know, first it's typing, then it's speaking, and then it's your DNA, you know, healthcare stuff in the cloud, which is the next level up, and then it's your brain, basically the uh, neural link kind of concept. So if you're looking at this magnitude of what could go wrong, you know, typing is, yeah, things go wrong, but it's just text, right? But all the way up to connecting to my brain directly with the BCI, computer interface, that is a that is a magnitude of a million in terms of possibility. So really what's missing already today is that central entity that takes care of a digital ID, of making sure that it's used in the right way, making sure the rules are being kept because there are basically almost no rules there. There are a few rules like the GDPR and stuff, but you know we don't have that in place yet. And I will not put my DNA in the cloud until I have a bona fide way of saying, okay, it is being kept safe and secure by an entity that's not tied into commercial purpose of using that data and they will do anything to monetize like Facebook has done. Absolutely. So that, that question must be answered before we move into voice control territory. Well, we'll have to leave that one hanging because that's a huge question and there isn't an answer for it yet. But on the positive side, I really love the, the vista um, of no apps, not having to fill in PIN numbers, addresses, credit card numbers, usernames and passwords the whole time with apps. Because surely if we have this human type interface, this kind of Jarvis from Iron Man there, it will interface with all of the apps or suppliers or whatever. We won't see them. Is that the way you would see it going? Will apps disappear from our phones and our children be saying, what's an app? <laughs> yeah, uh, it's kind of like what's a CD you know, or a DVD. I mean, these days, if you if you give your kids a CD for Christmas, they will call a therapist, right? <laughs> so, uh, so I, I think it's, this is definitely where it's going. The, the only question I have with this is the I call this the too much of a good thing question. So, this may be an amazing thing for us for usability and for, for making big advances in that regard. But maybe it's too much of a good thing that turns into a bad thing because it enables us to do things that are like Marshall McLuhan says, you know, every extension of man is also an amputation. And he said that in the 70s. And basically anything that we add like this 
could end up also removing something that we did before because it was part of the hurdle. So the hurdle of bringing up an app and typing is a considerable hurdle. If you could do that with voice command, you probably would. And if you could do it just by thinking, you definitely would, you know, because it would be unobtrusive, right? And so that is the thing that I would be a little bit concerned about is how do we actually make sure that it is in the end to help us flourish rather than help us outsource. And when it's too easy, it may become a permanent outsourcing. And, and I always say, basically, I would be worried at the moment where I get out of bed and I cannot exist. I cannot boot up, so to speak, right, without connecting to the internet. At that moment, I would be worried. So in a sense, the cost of doing something is part of the deal and is of value to us as a deterrent many times where things might not be appropriate or might not be good for us. And this kind of technology could release a torrent of tempting things that might not be good for us or certainly might not be good to do socially. Yeah, yeah, I think this is already happening all around us, right? You know, Google Glass or Apple Glasses as are coming, the eyeglasses with augmented reality, they would be a boon for a policeman or a fireman, for example, or a anybody who needs this kind of Tom Cruise minority report type connection. <laughs> you know, it could be amazing. But imagine if you were a doctor or a lawyer and you work in augmented reality all day, and then in the evening you take it off, you would feel like almost handicapped. And then you're looking at your kids and your wife and, or your husband and, and you're saying, oh, it's so boring. You know, I'm not, I'm not seeing all that stuff that I usually see. And this is kind of like similar related to the drug issue. Like we're using that to fortify ourselves. And within reason, it's okay. Drugs, cigarettes, smoking, alcohol, food, too much of a good thing can be a very bad thing. So that, that is the question that I would have. How would we deal with that kind of new interface, which is very close to thinking? You know, speaking and listening is very close to thinking, much more so than typing. Well, then that brings me on to the next really big question about this, which is the social impact. I can see a great benefit for lonely people, for example, having an AI to talk to. It'd be like having a real person there. And loneliness might be a thing of the past in that um, scenario. <laughs> However, the idea of everybody at work talking away to somebody invisible, their invisible friend the whole time, we're, we're going to need some sort of new etiquette, aren't we, for this? Yes. Well, first, I've said many times in my speeches, I don't think we'll find happiness in the cloud or on the screen or in a VR. We find interest in a certain kind of good hedonism. You know, it's not bad to be hedonic sometimes, and that's what technology does. But I think Ariana Hufflington once said technology is very good at giving us what we want, but not giving us what we need. And so I would very much question the idea of an AI being such a gift, for me, it is a tool, and that is different than a gift. If I'm at work as a tax accountant, and I can instantly pull up the data flow and have the AI organize it, I get my work done in 14 minutes, not in 14 hours. You know, that's amazing. But if I'm going to talk to somebody that needs a human-to-human -human connection, then I would know that this machine is a simulation. You know, it is essentially unlike anything that I am. You know, I don't believe that humans are machines. Some people do, but yeah, leads to this basic question, of course. But I would feel like this is becoming an argument for total dehumanization, like saying, why would you bother with a real marriage? You can just buy a robot, right? And people are arguing that already. So I think having voice control in such a way, we would need to really make sure it's mostly about productivity and competence, right? 
I think Stuart Russell, the guy who writes books on AI, UC Berkeley professor, he wrote a book called Human Compatible. And he says in the book, AI really should be all about machine competence, not consciousness. And I would propose for that to be our guiding light. You know, it's competent, but it's not conscious. And I don't care if the machine pretends to have agency. I know it doesn't. It's always going to be that question between the positive use of technology, for example, efficiency, productivity, tools, improvement, speed, and all that. And then there's a part that is human, which is the opposite of speed and efficiency. In fact, you could say that being human is a, also a result of inefficiency, that we say that we are human, so this is not working, right? We're not ready. <laughs> yeah, and, and this is the story of humans, of course, that we are not subject to the same laws than a, a thinking machine would be. And that is sometimes too bad, but this is really also a crucial difference. Well, now you're talking about drawing a line or making rules. And Isaac Asimov many years ago wrote The Laws of Robotics, which I think still stand to mm -hmm. a degree. However, the issue with technology is that there is no one who can stop it and say, hang on, let's just have five years to think about this. It doesn't stop. It's an unstoppable force, which is outside of the control of any human or group of humans. So how do we stop from having conscious AI and from having uh, the kinds of dehumanizing experiences that you're talking about where we get out of bed and, and plug ourselves in? Well, the question is always going to be, is it existential or not? Like nuclear weapons weren't existential until we had uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, which provided plenty of proof that it was existential. And, and then we agreed, okay, this is really urgent. We can't have everybody have a bomb. We'll, we'll be dead in 20 years right before that. And so we all agreed by the fact that we had to. And it's still working. It's not perfect, but it is working. And so here with artificial general intelligence called AGI, and you're talking about AGI here, right? So if a, if a machine can actually pretend to have a kind of agency as a human by just speaking, then you're talking about AGI. You're not talking about the current data gathering machines. So AGI, that's the same thing. I think at a certain point, we have to say, well, this is really great because it helps us solve climate change or pollution or whatever using AI. But at the point to where the machine becomes either possibly out of control or subject to abuse, like essentially large abuse, like Facebook <laughs> kind of abuse, then we're at the point to where it's existential. And then we have to come together and agree on what is within limits and what is out of limits. And that is going to be just as tough of a question as the nuclear agreements. But in the end, what choice do we have? So here's what I think is going to happen. All these things will go forward as if there was no tomorrow or rather no stopping. And then we will have incidents like we had with Hiroshima. And it's very likely not to be as bad in terms of dead people and so on, but we're going to have significant incidents causing significant damage of a sort by use of technology that goes wrong. And then we say, oh, this is not what it was intended to do. And so how do we agree on a standard? And that's what we're talking about right now on social media, right? We're going to have to find a new mm -hmm. standard. And if we don't find that standard, then it's basically useless. It, it becomes even more dehumanizing the better it gets. So the human voice, which I always say is the most powerful sound on the planet, will dominate our communication with whatever artificial entities we're going to 
create. And you also agree that probably this will become embedded technology ultimately. But we have got to take great care and we are going to get our fingers burned down this road at some point. Is that a fair summary? Yes, I would say so. I, I think that uh, my objective is always, okay, we have to embrace technology, but we should not become technology. And that difference is sometimes hard to tell. You know, if you had an accident and you're quadriplegic, you may well become technology so that you can move again. But, mm. but this is an entirely different thing than saying, okay, I am a regular human and I'm going to become superhuman by connecting my conversations to the cloud. Yes, I think technology-wise, that's all possible within the next decade or two. And then we have to think about how exactly will we deal with this capacity and what does it mean and how far do we go? Because imagine the scenario where, where you can do that and you become the super worker because you can talk to 50 AIs in the cloud and you get your work done in two minutes, right? And here I am without any AI, I need five hours. And that's going to discriminate against me in a significant way. And that has all kinds of issues to deal with. So this is definitely something that we have to look at. Well, that's a very interesting point. It's the old William Gibson, isn't it? The future is already here. It's just unevenly distributed. <laughs> and with this, if it's unevenly distributed, as you say, it's going to provide enormous advantages for those who have and enormous disadvantages for those who don't. Well, it's the difference between proaction and precaution. We must have proaction because that's how science and technology moves forward. But if we don't have precaution and say, well, if this does work, you know, what are the consequences? Then we're talking about the oil and gas business, which moved forward regardless of what comes out the other end. And then in the end, for the externalities, for the consequences, you know, somebody else will be responsible, which usually ends up being the state or the consumer. Right? And, mm. and that is not a good idea with technology because it's staggered, right? It's not just one thing like oil and gas. It's 50 things. So we do have to think about the externalities while we are launching these new ideas so that we can embed them in a context. So much to think about, Gerd. And, you know, from a simple idea, which is, oh, it'd be so much easier to speak and listen rather than type and read. My goodness, how many things we're going to have to think about and uh, how many scary things we're going to have to dodge. But that is, I guess, futurism, isn't it? Thinking about those things. And that's what you do. And um, get how do people find out more about you and what you do if they would like to get a glimpse of the future? Yeah, my website, of course, is futurewithgert.com. But my main instrument really is YouTube. And there's a shortcut, uh, gerdtube, G-E-R-D-tube.com, that will get you to my YouTube channel. And my latest book, of course, is Technology Versus Humanity. That's out in 14 languages. And lots of that is available also in various pieces and podcasts and so on. So if you just Google for Futurist and GERD, G-E-R-D, you'll find everything. Well, Gerd, this has been fascinating and I, I think equally frightening, which is the way it should be, I think, with technology. We need to be properly scared of what we might be able to do with this stuff. So I thank you very much for a really interesting conversation. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. So some profound and concerning issues there and a call to be very conscious as we're impelled into a very changed world by the unstoppable force that is technology. We clearly need to think carefully about consequences and not rush on focusing only on the bling of these shiny new toys. And some of the largest consequences for you and me, in the context of this podcast anyway, about sound and business, will be for brands. 
Luckily, there's a futurist who's thought about this aspect too. David Hull specialises in mapping out the future for CEOs, and he's advised over 4,000 of them. His background is in media, among other things he launched MTV, and as a futurist, he coined the phrase the shift age to describe our current time. He's an award-winning international speaker, and he's the author of six books, including one called Brand Shift, The Future of Brands and Marketing, which is all about how brands can succeed in the 21st century as technology changes the landscape they live in. Speaking to David at his home in Florida, I started by asking if he agrees that brands will need to focus on sound much more in their marketing in this new world of audio-based intelligent agents. First of all, whenever there's new technology, brands and marketers and advertisers rush in. And oftentimes that's a disaster because they're taking the conceptual constructs of the last media and bringing it into the new one. They will inevitably have to get involved in this. The question is how much trial and error till the new model is found and who's going to find how to come into this new medium and then take the right approach. But advertisers and marketers tend not to do that. They tend to just say, we've been successful here. We'll throw the same way in there. And so I think when it happens, and I agree with you that it's going to happen, there's going to be a lot of failure before there's success. And the early mover successful ones are going to dominate just as they did on TV. And do you think it's all going to be about valuable content? Because I've always said brands can be the stars of the virtual universe, but only if they wrap content around their initial offering that's of interest, that's going to attract the people who are going to be likely to like the thing they actually make, because we'll have this new gatekeeper. How do brands get through that new gatekeeper? Is it through branded content? Content is always important. I wrote in the Brand Shift book that what is of value to me is the content that you give me that is of value to me. If the content is always, but the last line is, so drink Coca-Cola, it's not as valuable. If you're in a good relationship, you know, in a human relationship, if somebody gives you something of value, you value that friendship. If somebody is always being nice to you because they want something from you, which is the analogy with branding, you won't. And the younger the demographic, the more that is true because there's less time of the established relationship. I'm a boomer. I've got established relationships with brands that are decades long. But if you're a millennial or a digital native, it's a matter of, is this of value to me at this time in my life? So if you think of the, the neurosphere, which I've lifted from Tyler Deschardin's new sphere, this pulsating synaptic technology-based version of the new consciousness, you can plug into me, David Hool, a consumer in many different ways. And the way you come into me is going to be different than the way you would come into my 35-year-old son. So you can't have a singularity of brand. You have to have a customized brand relative to the demographics. And that has always been the case, having launched MTV and seeing that revolution. So it's logical that if you have a variability of content and messaging by demographic, it has to become individualized. And the big data can certainly provide that. It's not a question of finding out what the right data is. The question is whether the brands are into listening rather than talking at the beginning. Now, that's a fascinating shift because the research shows that organizational listening is terrible. 
according to the organizational listening project, organizations spend 80% of their time at least sending. Exactly. And that will be the problem with getting through my own AI wingman, if you will, because it's going to have my biases. And if it has my biases, on every single level, it has to be customized to the degree that the brand understands that and they ask first, don't tell me, don't sell me. Ask me and invite me and provide value for me. Before we started this recording, you were using an example of book me a flight to so-and-so and then my intelligent assistant will know what airlines, but why is it my airlines? Because of the way they've treated me right? If everybody can fly from point A to point B, it's how I'm treated and what the experience is. So I'm going to make my decision on who I listen to based on my brand experience coming into this situation. So if they don't know that, they're going to lose. So that's a fascinating paradox, really, for brands in that they can build relationships through delivering great brand experience. But how do they get us to try them in the first place if we have a gatekeeper who's not going to let cold calling messages through? Everything can be uh, personalized. So if an airline's trying to get in, they're going to say, look, what do we have to do? We know that David always goes to United. We're Delta. What do we have to do? And they will be told the criteria that I subjectively used when booking a flight. And the question is with how they will respond. And I think, as you said, 80% they're talking, they're not listening. If I want to have a good conversation, the, the criteria for me is somebody who is a good listener and who is really intelligent and engaging. If somebody's just waiting to talk, they're not a conversation. You know, it's your turn, my turn. It's like playing chess, your move. There's a lot of initial failure because. I think this is the first case where it, it's going to have to be highly subjective rather than data-driven. In other words, Facebook uses personal data. I'm not on Facebook for that reason. The point is, is that social media is a targeting mechanism for advertisers. Well, once you lift off of a platform and you lift into the individual, and sound is such a subjective thing, it has to be a high failure rate for any brand that will not understand that it starts from zero knowledge and has to gain the knowledge to get into the access. And that's a unique new position for brands. Not, I am going to use my bag of tricks because one of them is going to work and I'll keep trying until one of them works. But what do I need to know so that I can become the brand in my category? Well, this is marketing as a conversation, isn't it? Yes. Which is a completely different thing where relationship is what it's all about. You know, if I want to know what you like, I can ask you and you might tell me if you think right. I've got some reason and I'm going to be able to uh, deliver some value to you. And it's also based on generosity and to a degree altruism, not simply one's own agenda. It's looking at putting the agendas of both parties on the table in front and saying, how can we match these things up? Which is a very different way of behaving from the classic marketing, the one-to-many, the push, the intrusion, the clever copy to overcome the fact that you're bothering people the whole time. This is a conversation and I think that's absolutely fascinating. Are there any brands which have that kind of thing going on yet? Or is this going to be completely new to all of them? Oh, I think some brands have it going on. I'll use an example that I've used before as a futures and talking to CEOs. 
If you're a tech support type of company, what you want to do is put out content. So you are giving advice and I am not a client, nor will I be a client in the near future, but I like your advice. As soon as I become a client in your market space, I'm going to go to you first because you've been giving me content that's valuable. So for example, to go back to the airlines, if I'm a United person and my intelligent companion knows that, it might say, you know, David, you're always concerned about getting the aisle seat far forward. And Delta has given us some information that is going to show me that my proclivities are important to them. Intelligent assistant, what does David like? He likes to sit in an aisle seat far forward and coach. Okay, so we will only give him deals when we can confirm that seat. Would you let him know that? And United is not going to let me know that. Well, that's a game changer, right? So it mm. still comes down to knowing me, but it also is creating any potential content that might make me switch. As you say, it's a conversation. They get to know me and they'll own me. And as long as I have a sense that they're truly interested in knowing me rather than selling me, they're going to get in. I've often said that in the shift age, which is a phrase I've coined, there's three forces, the flow to global, the flow to the individual, and accelerated electronic connectedness. And the flow to the individual is what's relevant here, because when there's an explosion of choice, the power moves from the producer to the consumer, from the institution to the individual. So as individuals, every single day, we become ever more in control of the relationship with brands. That's why we have this on-demand, I want what I want, when I want it, and how I want it. Any good brand has to know that intuitively. It's interesting that in this world of increasing personalization, the fastest growing forms of marketing that I'm aware of tend to be in audio. Podcasting is certainly booming. We've done a separate episode of this podcast about podcasting. It's absolutely steaming ahead because it's been able to be highly segmented and targeted. And that's the step we're at now. So what's the next step into individual customization, you know, in an active moment-to-moment -moment life? So yeah. coming back to my question, wh what do you think the future is for advertising, for cold contact? I mean, I absolutely get what you're saying, that this is a conversation and that the most important part of any sales conversation, any great salesperson will tell you, is the listening, not the speaking. Right. So brands need to be listening in order to be saying the right things and delivering the right value. But how do they make that first contact? If it's a brand new launch, never come across it before, I've got my gatekeeper, how am I going to come across it? I think the first thing they need to do is to go to Maslow's hierarchy of needs. If they're an aspirational brand and I'm a 25-year-old male, they are going to guide me because I'm investing in the perception of their brand as an identity extension of me. If they're a commodity brand, a food or an airline, not so much. So to the degree that you're higher up on Maslow's hierarchy of needs, it's a degree that you can stand within your brand message and listen less. If you're a this is who I am brand, if you're a brand about who I want to be and how I want to be identified, I'm going to be much more of a listener there and incorporate you because I think you will make me the person I want to be. And if you're a commodity, it's much more about listening to me. In this book, Brand Shift, now it was published in the end of 2014. We, we looked at brand loyalty and the love brands 
in 2014 were Apple, Toyota, and Google, right? Because at that time, there was a high degree of relationship affinity. The weakest ones, and this is really interesting, were Walmart, Microsoft, and Facebook. In other words, Facebook had a lower brand relationship than any airlines or automotive company. The only way to relate to that is think of the phone company. You like to talk on the phone, but you hate the phone company. So Mm. in other words, the only reason for Facebook is it allows people to share. They have no brand loyalty to Facebook. It's just the place where they can share. Well, it's interesting also that Facebook does not have any audio brand whatsoever, as far as I know. So it seems to be that it's more of a tolerated utility. And it doesn't mind that because it's after our attention, isn't it? This is the attention economy. And all it wants is eyeballs, eyeballs, eyeballs. Um, Yeah, what's the parallel, John? Eardrums, eardrums, eardrums? Well, I think we've got less tolerance through our ears. If somebody is being repetitive, dull, boring, insistent, I don't think we'll tolerate that to the same degree that we will through the eyes. So as we're moving to interfacing with the world much more through our ears and through our voice, I think brands are going to have to be rather more interesting. Relative technology, I would let my intelligent agent know kinds of music I like, right? So how does the technology work in a way that the brand can access that to customize it? How do you see that happening? Because to me, to the degree that that can be known by the brands, they're going to choose to adapt or not. And if they don't adapt, they're not going to be my brand. I guess we will have to set up rules, won't we, where we would accept first contact from things that have this, 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 and this, but not from things that are like that, that, and that. Because surely in this world of everything being available to us, tidal wave of content, massive mountain of FOMO behind the the tidal wave of content, the most valuable role of all is trusted guide the guide that will take us something that will surprise and delight us that we didn't know we were going to like. Otherwise, we end up in silos going round and round like mice on a little wheel. Right. In other words, you know, it's just like autonomous automobiles, the business model that most works for it right now are rental car companies, fleets. So would it brand marketers turn to audio streamers to learn how to do this? There's no doubt that we are willing to give quite a lot of information to those services in order to get better recommendations. But when we have the intelligent agent in between us and the streaming services, do we need their algorithms? Or can our agent be going out and searching for things that are like the things we like, which we may like, and bringing them to our attention like a dog wagging its tail and giving us something really of value? In this audio intelligent agent model, the consumer is in 100% control. There'll be hierarchies of consumers where at one end, bring me the best deal. And the other is much more sophisticated and involved with many more layers that go into the decision-making process. The, The individualization and the ownership at the consumer level, at the customer level, at the human level, is as absolute as any media marketing platform in existence. Now, you have a model, David, I know, of technology which goes from dumb to smart to intelligent to the endpoint, which is conscious. And I've just been thinking while you've been speaking, that kind of applies to brands now, doesn't it? Um, Absolutely. 
so the conscious brand, the brand that is listening, building a relationship, personalizing it, giving me exactly what I want. So it may be a different facet of the brand that I'm seeing to the one that you're seeing. We might have really different relationships with that brand because it's really good at understanding what we both prefer. Those conscious brands are going to be the ones that succeed in this world, aren't they? I think that's perfectly said. I completely agree. For any brand managers or marketing directors or CMOs listening to this, what are the things they need to be doing in order to get there? You start with some simple statements. Focus on what you don't know than what you know. Focus on the gaps of your knowledge than your knowledge. Don't come into it with a sense of expertise. Come into it with a sense of exploration. One of the three people I most quote is Marshall McLuhan. And the medium is the message. So if the medium is intelligent audio agents into my life, the message has to be within that. What we're doing is we're extending our humanness into a tool and we are becoming of the tool. It is not a advertising medium as much as it's a new advertising reality. And anytime you come into a new reality from an old reality or a new situation from an old situation, you can bring some of the expertise and baggage with you. But if you bring too much into this topic that we're talking about, that will guarantee failure. This is technology achieving humanization in marketing, which is a very interesting kind of closing of the loop, isn't it? Once upon a time, it was all personal. Uh, then it became very machine. And what I'm hearing you saying now is that uh, we now need to be applying technology, big data, everything at our disposal to go back to this being essentially a personal relationship. Some people can use the intelligent a agents as buffers to the marketplace. Like, I'm going to use you to protect me. Here's what I like. I know what I like go get it, and only that stuff. And at the other end of the continuum is going to be, you know, I'm really curious and I'm inquiring. There's got to be something new out there. So keep looking for new stuff. I mean, as a futurist, I get asked, how do you do your research? And I always say I'm the most intellectually superficial grazer you'd ever want to meet. I got two <laughs> to 300 things coming in every day, not all of which I'll read, but I see them all. So my intelligent agent, I would ask to be inquisitive rather than a buffer. Maybe that's a continuum as to how the user uses the intelligent agent. I always use the intelligent agent to make me smarter, to open my awareness, to open some doors to me, to find new experiences, to find different ways of thinking about it. But then other people can go, I know what I like, and here's what I want, and here are my metrics, period. So maybe that's the new demography, if you will, for brands and marketers, how open the user makes their intelligent agent. How can the individual who's the inquiring sort put that out into the world? Mm. My master is really interested in the following. And the degree that you give him that in a way that helps his life is the degree that you, brand X, will come into his life versus put it within this box in these metrics or don't bother me again. There's going to be a whole new brand marketing demographic language around this, I think. Well, it sounds like relationship is going to be at the heart of it in one way or another, personal relationship, which no is question. really exciting because that means listening and sound and speaking and listening right. are the foundation of that. David, we're 
pretty much out of time here, but I'd love to ask if people want to find out more about you and your work, how do they do that? They can go to davidhrule.com. I'm writing a series of books about the 2020s, so the 2020sdecade.com. And of course, forkintheroadproject.com. And thank you for becoming a signer to that. Well, David, I'm sure people will come and uh, check all of that out. And I want to thank you for your time today. It's been a really interesting conversation. I hope anybody involved in brands has found it so and can apply these rules to be successful in this new age of the audio revolution. David, thank you so much. Well, thank you for having me. I, I enjoyed the conversation. So thank you for inviting me. Well, I found that somewhat comforting, the idea that the implacable force that is technology is ultimately going to rehumanize marketing and bring us back to the original context of an individual conversation. According to David, brands that segment and personalize are heading in the right direction, but are only at the start of a road that leads to individualized marketing and negotiation with intelligent agents that mirror and resolutely defend their owners' preferences. But the good news is that those agents will tirelessly be seeking for better fits, whichever end of the openness spectrum their brief lies at. At the same time, Gerd warns us that there are dangers in giving unlimited data to powers that are driven purely by commercial considerations. There needs to be a fair, responsible and balanced relationship between us as individuals, with our intelligent agents at our side, and the brands, organisations and governments that we deal with. It's give to get on both sides. We give data, brands give increased value. There will have to be rules, and I do hope the incidents that bring the world together to agree on those rules are not going to be too serious. So, what's the next action? as the getting-things-done guru David Allen would ask. I think, for brands, it's to create a sonic identity congruent with the visual identity that's dominated for so long and consistent in its implementation across marketing and brand experience. Then, clearly, the name of the game is personalization a huge step from segmentation and far more meaningful than just a first name included in an outbound email or a mailing. At the meeting place of big data, the cloud and AI is a new relationship where brands carefully consider every aspect of their offering and focus on the ones you and I, possibly quite differently, find attractive. They'll do that by learning the single skill that underpins all strong relationships, listening. Sound Business is brought to you by The Sound Agency, designing effective business sound since 2003 and is co-produced by Podcast Network Solutions, a full-service podcast production company who are ready to help you plan, record, produce and promote your message with podcasting. To find out more about how the Sound Agency can boost your business with bespoke sound and to grab your free copy of our four golden rules for sound, visit thesoundagency.com forward slash podcast.